Welcome. Uh, glad to see you all here. Everybody got up earlier today. Um, I think that's like a little bit, that's kind of changing. We all have smartphones that tell us, that change our clocks for us now, so it's not a big deal anymore. Um, I would covet your prayers. I'm, I'm trying to put together a sabbatical trip for next year, and I have to write a grant proposal for it and everything else, and I'm very excited about it. So just be praying for me about that. Um, and, you know, a few of you have been uh, in conversation with me about that for a number of months now. And, and I, I just really think, you know, I, one of the things, and we're going to see it on a map today in this sermon, is there's a trail that goes from above the Sea of Galilee down. It's 306 miles. goes down uh, through Jordan on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River to uh, the Dead Sea. And I want to do that trail on that sabbatical. And so I'm very excited about that. Uh, when when I opened the, when I opened up the map, and I saw that. Oh, sorry, just I just like oh, I want to be there. I want to do that. So uh, I get to go through hike through Petra and things like that. Just it would be good for my soul. So be praying for that, um, and and that it all comes together. But uh, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We ask that uh, you would wake wake us up. That you would you would you would uh, open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see you. I pray that we would get back to our first love, Father God. Those those moments when we first met you, that were so raw and special. We pray that you would, you would make those come alive in our hearts again. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would lead us, direct us, guide us, however we want to say that. We pray that you would be the one thing that we desire above and, all, above and beyond all things in life. Above and beyond our homes, uh, our bank accounts, our successes, um, even our own families, that you would take precedence over every single thing in our lives and that that would push us to understand what we are in your hands and what you expect of us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you have not been with us, today is the last of a four-part series. This sermon is the last one in a four-part series looking at the biblical story. Uh, and today we're going to see Jesus as the Great Commission Messiah, and we're going to see ourselves as His Great Commission people, right? And we're looking, if you remember, I want to just go back through a little bit of what we said. We're looking at the, the, the Bible as one book with one introduction, one story, and one conclusion. And I was really happy. I, I, uh, I was watching a little video of Vody Bauckham last night, my new favorite preacher, outside of myself. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he said the same thing. I was like, yeah, Vody, I'm saying that tomorrow. So um, anyway, but we, we've learned that God is pursuing his greatest glory. And uh, in turn, we receive our greatest joy in, in the idea of reaching all people groups, all nations of the world with the gospel. We've learned that the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation 
of that biblical story, right? Um, it's, it's sort of a set of railroad tracks running from Genesis to Revelation all the way through with one rail being that top line uh, of the covenant promise that God gave to Abraham originally that he wants to bless us. He wants to bless his people. It's just who he is, what he wants to do, how he wants to live with us and all that stuff. And the second rail is uh, that we are to take that blessing and turn it out to people, that we are to take the blessing of God and bring it to people. We are to be his witnesses to all people groups on earth. Um, we've seen Israel as a great commission nation all throughout the Old Testament, uh, people that God uh, repeatedly told in various ways, if you remember, uh, to go out and to share his glory with all of those nations that surrounded them, right? And today... We're going to look at six different passages which point us to the idea that Jesus was Messiah both to Jew and to Gentile. You may already know that, but a lot of people don't know that and don't think that he would be. Um, But uh, he he came seeking to reach both Jew and Gentile. And uh, and today uh, we're going to first look at his job description, all right, as Messiah. Secondly, we're going to look at... uh, uh, how he strategically located himself, his, his ministry to reach this goal of reaching both Jew and Gentile. Uh, thirdly, that his miracles also pointed to this. And then fourthly, that uh, when Jesus sent out his disciples, you're going you're gonna to notice right away that he said something that seems to contradict everything that I've been saying for these four weeks. And we're going to deal with that. And then fifthly, we're going to see uh, how he cleared the temple. We've talked about that a little bit, but we're going to go a little bit more into that, uh, revealing his heart for all people groups. And finally, we're going to see that this challenge has been passed on to us uh, as his people. So firstly, in Isaiah 49.6, and I was was happy last night. I also listened to my brother preach. He uh, pastors a church in Florida, and... uh, and, and he was going through Isaiah, and he was preaching all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, Joe, you know, like me and my brother, we're on, we're on the same page, man. That was cool. So anyway, but Isaiah 49, verse 6, gives us the Messiah's job description. Uh, when God says this, it says, or he says, it's too small a thing. Now listen to that. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Now, Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah, right? And in other words, it's not enough for Jesus to be a top-line Messiah to only Jewish peoples, right? He's, he'd be showing only some of God's glory at that, you know, by doing that and not his greatest glory. And therefore, we would have some joy, but not, uh, not the fullest joy that he intends for us, right? Um, remember, God's greatest glory is shown when all the different people groups of the world uh, in all of their diversity are unified under Christ, not erased. Their diversity is not erased. God glories in that. He loves it. He loves the differences, all the languages and colors and, and customs and all that kind of stuff. He glories in that. And when he brings that all under Christ, that's when we see our great, his greatest glory and we have our greatest joy, right? So it continues in uh, Isaiah 49, 6. It says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. In other words, all the other people groups that are not Jewish. 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to every corner of the earth. How can you have corners and something's round? But that's what we say, right? Um, but the Messiah will and has always been intended to be a bottom line to the Gentile nations of the earth. Always. So let's see how Jesus did this by looking at where he located his ministry to see what it had to do with reaching both Jew and Gentile, right? He's totally fine. I don't, I don't mind his crying. It's kind of nice to hear a baby crying. <laughs> but uh, Matthew 4, th- uh, 13 through 16 says this. Talking about Jesus, it says, Leaving Nazareth, remember Jesus grew up in Nazareth, right? He went and he lived in, I always want to say Capernaum. I don't know why. It just got stuck in my head when I was younger and I can't get it. Capernaum or Capernaum. I know. If I mispronounce it today, don't write me emails. I just know it. But it just, it comes out of my mouth. I can't help it. But anyway, leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, right? See, it's hard for me to get that word out of my mouth. Jesus intentionally moved there to that city, all right? You've got to understand how important that is. See, the Sea of Galilee in the north feeds. See, well, I've got my little map. I, you people at home, if you're watching from home, you're probably not going to be able to see all that. So uh, go online later and look at the slides because I think it's kind of interesting. But the Sea of Galilee um, in the north feeds into the Jordan River, and then it runs down south and it dumps into the Dead Sea, right? Um, and Jerusalem is to the left down by the Dead Sea, and Capernaum's located in the north, just above the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth, where Jesus grew up as a kid, was located in between those, but it's closer, farther up near Capernaum. And Gentiles in the area would largely be in the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning polis, or polis meaning city, right? So ten cities, right? It's a grouping of ten cities east of the Sea of Galilee, and it runs along down the Jordan River. So you've got all these these Greek cities, and this was an, sort of an effort. All these different relocation of people was to get Jew, Jews and Gentiles to mix, which wasn't always uh, fruitful, but, you know, sometimes it was. But anyway, Tyre and Sidon are up there on the, le- on, on the west, on the coast there, and they are totally Gentile cities, uh, up there in the north on the coast, right? And what you've got to understand is that Jewish peoples don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah for obviously a number of reasons. But one reason they don't believe is uh, where he was located. Now, so listen to what this guy says, this Jewish guy says in an interview on the radio in the Middle East when he's, he's interviewing the, this Christian. He says, I appreciate your zeal for Jesus being the Messiah, but he clearly was not. If he had been, he would have based his ministry in the heart of Judaism, which was Jerusalem, right? So get that mindset that that the Messiah is not going to come to Gentiles. He's going to go only to Jews, right? Instead, he chose some hick town up north called Capernaum, right? Obviously, he wasn't the Messiah, the guy says. It's simple logic, my friend, right? So... Jesus chose Capernaum for two reasons. One is to fulfill his job description. And two was to fulfill the scriptures, which are pretty much the same thing, right? For Jews to travel from Jerusalem to Capernaum was about a five to seven day journey, right? It's it's quite quite a commitment, right? 
And any Jew would have gladly traveled if they felt that the Messiah, who they had been waiting for centuries to show up and free them from Roman oppression, was there, up there in Capernaum. They would make that journey, right? So there's a motivation there. But Gentiles would have, wouldn't have made a five to seven day journey down to Jerusalem based on some rumors that some guy might be able to heal you. There's a lot of little charlatans out there. Why are you going to do, do, do that whole trip, right? You, you're not going to believe that. But, but the sick and the needy and the curious would have taken a short trip to Capernaum just to see, just to figure it out, right? And he would be adding to his witnesses. Bottom line is that Jesus located his ministry in a mixed Jewish-Gentile area to fulfill his job description in Isaiah 49, verse 6. And Jews would have been motivated to make that long trip, and he was close enough to the Decapolis and next door for Gentiles to come and check him out as well, right? Matthew continues in in chapter 4. He says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So... So fulfilling, fulfilling a prophecy, we see that. It continues. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? You hear that wording? So Galilee of the Gentiles tells us that Jesus was living in a mixed Jewish area. It continues. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Now realize that if a Jewish person was reading this, they would not have considered themselves to be living in darkness. You understand that? They were the enlightened. They had the scriptures. They were the people of God. They weren't living in darkness. They wouldn't have considered themselves. They already knew the one true God, right? So this wording obviously refers to Gentiles, right? When it says that they've seen a great light, you know, it's, it's speaking about the Gentiles. That light is Jesus as the Messiah, and they are now able to trust in God as well through this. Gentiles living around Christ at that time came into God's kingdom. Jasmine line, green tea, humankind. Mm-mm-mm. It's yummy stuff. 50, if I drink this, 50 gallons of clean drinking water go out in some needy place in the world little plug anyway but matthew continues he says on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned right so again when the jews heard those words read those words they wouldn't have thought that that would apply to themselves at all right but to gentiles who were now having this opportunity to see and to know jesus as messiah it applies to them He located his ministry in a mixed Jewish-Gentile area to fulfill his job description of reaching both Jew and Gentile. Jesus was very intentional, right? So what concerns us when we're thinking about where to live, right? That's a good question. Typically, we, we, go, we, we find a job, the, the most high-paying job we, we can find, the one that gives us the best benefits and all that stuff, and we usually move to the proximity of that job. And that's the way we make those decisions. That's that's what prioritizes our choices. But from this text, how could we prioritize our choices? Well, we could ask, 
where would be the most strategic place for me as, as a person of God, as a person that is a follower of Christ, for me to, to live and to fulfill my purpose in life for reaching all the nations? Good question, right? Once discovered, once I find that place, I move and I find a job there and I minister there, right? Following the example of Jesus in his kingdom life makes a difference about how we make choices. It's, it, most of the time, it upends how we make choices, right? Now, let's look at a third way that Jesus reveals an equal commitment to Jew and Gentile, through, and that is through his miracles. We jump to Matthew 4, verses 24 and 25. It says, news about him spread all over Syria. So Syria is up and to the right, to the east, you know, in that whole area. And Syria was Gentile. And it wasn't far away from Capernaum, right? And Gentiles were coming down, and they were being healed, right? And it continues. And people brought brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them, right? Amen to that. So he's healing both Jew and and Gentile. Jesus is ministering well to everybody because he has always been the Messiah to all peoples, right? And it says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So you think about it. Here are all the, the, the disciples watching this, you know, or, or, you know, eventually they'd be watching all this and they're seeing this and and everybody's coming around Jesus. Everybody's, but they don't get it. You know, the disciples are kind of thick, right? They don't get it. Galilee had both Jewish and Gentile cities, right? The Decapolis was predominantly Gentile. Jerusalem was predominantly Jewish, as was Judea, right? And then those across the Jordan were mixed, right? So God is saying that Jesus had both Jewish, in other words, top-line covenant promise, uh, you know, and then Gentile bottom line covenant promise followers. He had both. And the very thing, it's the very exact thing that God wanted from the very beginning of the story, if you remember, right? And because he was, he was always meant to be the Messiah for all people groups, not just Jews. And this, is, this top and bottom line emphasis is seen all throughout Jesus' ministry, all throughout it. So let's look at two events of sending the disciples, the 12 and the 70. And you're going you're gonna to shout at me or write me an email and say, it's not 70, it's 72. Well, be patient and listen, right? Just listen. Uh, the, 12, the, the accounting of the 12 is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, and it says this. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So there it is. That's, that's the, the statement that seems to communicate that Jesus didn't want the disciples to go to the Gentiles. But I think if we have patience and we look at the whole story, we're going to look at the big picture over time and we can understand this. As you know, in Acts chapters 2 through 7, uh, the gospel basically explodes with thousands of people added. But note that Although I think there were Gentiles coming to Christ at that time, the, the disciples really stuck with the Jewish peoples, 
right? That's where they put their, you know, the scriptures indicate that they intentionally were only really going to Jews. But we get the first glimpse of the disciples really bringing an intentionality about going to Gentiles, in, you know, and bringing them into God's kingdom in Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. If you remember that vision, there's this this uh, sheet let let down, and there's all these four footed animals in the sheet, right? And um, you know from heaven, and and uh, they, these animals are all considered unclean or impure to Jewish peoples. And and Peter hears the Lord say, you know, Peter, arise, kill, and eat, right? And and Peter says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure. He thinks it's this test, right? For, you know, I, you know, is he gonna really going to eat them, you know? But this happened three times, if you remember that story, and then the sheet was taken back. And then Peter is then asked to go to Cornelius. And Cornelius is this Gentile soldier, right? And he goes in, and he eats with them in their home, and, and he wins the whole family to the Lord, the whole household to the Lord. But the other disciples back in Jerusalem, they hear about this and they think that it's wrong for him to do this, right? Because according to Jewish law, a Jew should never enter the house of a Gentile, let alone eat there. That's even worse, right? And so Peter returns to Jerusalem and, and the reason they, they wouldn't eat there is because they would be eating these things that Jewish law told these guys not to eat, right? And Peter returns to Jerusalem, and the other the eleven disciples criticize him in Acts chapter eleven, verse three. It's, they say, "You went into the house of an uncircumcised man, and you ate with them." Oh my goodness, right? And so Peter explains the whole story of his vision and everything to these guys, and the conclusion is in Acts chapter eleven, verse eighteen, and it says, "When they heard this." They had no, now remember, these guys have walked with Jesus, they've seen his whole ministry, and they say, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and praise God, saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. They're just now getting it. They're just now getting it. How thick can you be, right? It's all new to them because they had this such a great dislike for Gentiles, which they were never supposed to have. They were basically racists to the core towards anybody that was not Jewish. They're just now coming to understand this message after having seen Jesus himself minister to Gentile after Gentile himself, right? So if you think about it, what would it have been like if Jesus sent them out to the Gentiles way back in Matthew 10, right? When they still had that attitude, when they couldn't get it right, the disciples would have gone out to the Gentiles and they would say, you know, we've been told to come and tell you this. We don't really want to be here. We don't really like you guys, but we've been told to come and tell you that God loves you. See ya. And they'd be like, oh, wonderful. Come on in and have dinner. They'd be like, no, don't even come near me. Don't touch me. You are a dog. I can't stand you. But I've been told to tell you this. And I'm only doing this because I'm, is there any love in that message? Is there any acceptance in that message? Is there any glorying in the differences of people in that message? No, right? So that's why. So when Jesus sends out the 12, he says, just go to the Jews first, right? But he he does let them know that they're eventually going to be witnessing and to Gentiles. In Matthew 10, 17 and 18, it says, beware of men for they will deliver you over to the courts 
and flog you in their synagogues. Who's going to flog them? The Jews will, right? To flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So they're going to be brought before Gentiles to bear witness of God's glory, right? They'll go before Gentiles, but for now... Jesus wants them to get it right with the Jews. This is practice time. This is training time. Jesus is patient knowing that these guys are thick-headed and they need a lot to understand what's going on. It's the same for all of us, right? We don't really get something the first time we hear it. We have to hear it like a thousand times. We have to see it modeled over and over and over again before we actually get it. That's why ministry is not easy, right? Because it's dealing with people. The psychology of people is very difficult, right? But when he sends out the 70 disciples, and I say 70 intentionally, he simply says, go. Go to whoever you come in contact with, which we see in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 3. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 70, and your Bible says two. If you looked in that Bible right now in the front of that pew, it says 72, but I'm going to say 70. Believe me, I have a very high respect for the word. I'm not sitting here trying to change the word of God. But if you look at that 72, there's a, little, there's a little B there. And then if you look down at the bottom of the page, it says some manuscript said 70. Now, I'm saying 70 because it makes a difference. And I want, I want to show that. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 or 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, go. So realize that you know, these manuscripts, some manuscripts say 70. And you remember, if you remember last week or the week before, I forget uh, what the number 70 represents. It re- it's a it's representation of all the nations of the earth, right? All the non-Jewish Gentile nations of the earth, which seems to make more sense, if you ask me, given the implications of this passage to go anywhere and everywhere as Jesus sends them out, Talk to Jews, talk to Gentiles, talk to anyone you can find and tell them of this good news, right? He's sending them out to witness to the nations, right? So the sending of the 12 was definitely a top line sending and the sending of the 70 was definitely a bottom line sending. And you can say 72, I don't care. We, we can say 70 or 72. doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It says the same thing, right? Um. He fulfilled his job description to both Jew and Gentile very clearly. So what's that application for us, right? Well, you're probably not going to go out and learn Amharic or, uh, you know, the language of the Uyghurs or, you know, Chinese or Arabic or Bahasa Indonesia tonight or tomorrow. You know, you're just not going to do that. But you can begin to reach those who you know locally, right? Amen. People like us, which is part of our calling. I'm supposed to be meeting people on the way, the, the, the main line, people like me that I share common culture with and all that kind of stuff, common language with. That's part of my calling. I should be witnessing. I should be sharing the gospel. I should be praying over people. But it's not my whole calling, right? It prepa- that prepares me to, for my global purpose in reaching the nations. And I can't wait to backpack through the Middle East, you know, and and just share the gospel. That's what I want to do. That'd be so much fun, right? There are times when Jesus was very direct about his call to the Gentiles, right? 
as in, you know, one was when he dealt with this Gentile centurion. You remember that story? Two, there's two passages that cover this account, one in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, and the other in Luke 7, 2 through 5. Here's the bells. Um, it says, let's begin in Luke. You know, right, right here, um, he says, it says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, right? who was highly valued by him. So this guy means a lot to him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. So the centurion sends Jewish elders to Jesus, asking him to come and to heal his servant. You know, smart move, right? So um, he sends these Jewish elders and he asked Jesus to heal this guy. And, you know, extra biblical sort of rabbinic law forbade any Jew, much less a rabbi, from going into the house of a Gentile since they were considered, you know, they they eventually came to the conclusion that they were unclean, you know, dogs and, you know, stuff like that. It was really to protect themselves from overstepping their bounds on the law. But Jewish law came from three places, the Torah, uh, which is actual scriptures, the rabbinic law, literature, and then... Jewish customs, you know, that became pretty strong. And this, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is extra biblical law, that, which came from the hedge of law that the rabbis put around all of the scriptures in order to protect themselves from even coming close to doing something wrong, right? Well, they, the, 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 the Gentiles eat, you know, this food that I can't eat, so therefore I'm not even going to go near them, Right? You know, it, it just, you know, they put so much in packs. The Hadith of Islam is the same way. If you don't know, if you know anything about that, um, it's extra Quranic literature. It's basically, it just outlines everything that Muhammad, the prophet, did in his lifetime, even down to what he ate with his watermelon, or if he spit out the seeds, or if he swallowed them. And from this point on, every Muslim in the world, if they eat watermelon, they eat it with this thing, or they, they spit out the seeds, or they don't spit out the seeds. I can't remember if that's actually a thing, but I do know that what he ate it with is in there. You know, stuff like that, just these little details of his life, and, and people try to follow that so that they can be extra perfect, right? So, um, I don't know where I am. <laughs> so this centurion knew of these prohibitions, you know, and and so he sends elders to convince Jesus. And it says in Luke seven four and five, it says, and when they came to Jesus, now listen to this, they pleaded with him earnestly, like they're really at it, right, saying he is worthy, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and what, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. It's all about the cheddar, right? It's all about the money. It's all about the, the almighty dollar. This guy gave us money, so you got to go help him. In other words, Jesus, this guy is, you know, he's, the, he's, he's a guy we need to keep in our pocket. Let's overlook the little law for this one, and you can just go ahead and go. We'll give you the blessing to do that. They thought this, that this pol- these politics or this money would influence Jesus, that that would be his reason for going. But if you go to Matthew's description in chapter 8, um, you see Jesus' response. And he just basically says, I'll go and I'll heal him, right? I'll go and heal him. So Jesus had no problem breaking this little, you know, these little extra rules that they were, they were packing around the scriptures. And then the centurion replied, if you remember, Lord I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This guy was something special, right? 
but just say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it, right? So the centurion feels he doesn't have any reason to deserve Jesus to come under his roof. Money has nothing to do with this. This guy is a pretty decent guy. He's doing it for the right reasons, right? He just loves his servant, and he wants this guy to, uh, to be healed, um, he's used to giving orders. He's used to being in or under authority. And so he acknowledges that Jesus is either under authority and, or Jesus has authority, specifically authority to heal. And he realizes that Jesus doesn't have to be present to heal his servant, right? Jesus has the authority and it can be done from afar, right? From anywhere. So this guy is already showing as a Gentile centurion, great faith in Christ, Right? He's already recognizing something that all the Jews didn't recognize. And so Jesus responds. Now listen to these words. You got to put your place yourself in. You're a Jewish elder sitting there listening to Jesus say this, right? Put yourself in that place. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It's like, Boom, has a kick. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, oof, right to the gut. That's a hard thing for them to hear, right? He didn't treat these Gentiles as second-class citizens or second-class believers. He considered them equally as part of God's kingdom right then and there, right? And so saying this to these Jewish elders following him was this deep wound, And it's a wound he starts to rub salt into a little bit. Listen to this. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. Remember what directional language means. It means the nations of the world, right? From the east and the west and will take their their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So he says this. East and West, people coming from close and far. Biblically, another way to say all nations, right? He's saying there's going to be uh, Gentile, there, there will be Gentiles from every nation on earth sitting at this feast. The, the, the great celebration and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers, you Jewish guys, are going to be at the head of the table. But all these other uh, nations will be there and and, and these guys are the guys that got the promise, right? Got the covenant promise to reach all nations. And it'll be all be fulfilled. <laughs> and this is why God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if he's saying, I am God who is committed to redeeming people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at the head of the table, they will be celebrating the fulfillment of that covenant that I made to them while all these other people sit here. And notice, there's a reservation in their names, in in the Gentiles' names already. God has already reserved a place for the people that he wants to reach from all these nations of the earth. He already has them in mind. He already knows who they are. Done deal. We just need to be a part of the part of it and own our role, right? Let's look at Jesus as a top and bottom line Messiah in Matthew 21, uh, where he clears the temple. We've talked about this before, but I want to go go at it a little bit more. It says this: And Jesus entered the temple 
and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, if you ever go to a church and you have a pastor preach that this is about greed, you can say it's secondarily about greed. The, the central purpose of this passage is not about greed, right? Note what it says. It says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if you remember, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about how people cut off the last phrase of that, right? Because he's quoting Isaiah right there. And then he says, but you'll make it a den of robbers. But if you go to Mark eleven seventeen, Mark adds a, 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 a phrase, that phrase, for all nations. So my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is Isaiah 56, verse 7, Right? So they were out there, you know, trading and selling in the Gentile court. Foreigners were only allowed in the outer court, you know, which became known as the Gentile court. And and Jews were non-verbally communicating to them that they didn't see them as worthy to enter into the interior courts and worship God along with them. They were just treating them terribly. But the, the Gentile court was a place where the nations would come and watch and hear and, and learn and be invited into a relationship with God, but that wasn't happening. And so the Jews were writing off 99% of the world's population, and Jesus challenged them, and he's overturning their tables. He's mad. He should be mad. This is his thing, not theirs. And he's mad, and he, and he quotes Isaiah 56.7. Because he wants those people, his heart longs for these people to come in and to worship and be reconciled with him, right? Matthew 21, 33 through 43 is a parable about the Abrahamic covenant. Let's read that one. He says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to, the ten- to tenants and went into another country. So we know a vineyard bears fruit, right? And so, and where in the Old Testament did God ask his people to bear fruit? The Abrahamic covenant. They were to be a blessing to all the nations, to bear the fruit of bringing people into a relationship with God. The tenants are the Israelites, obviously in this, this parable, who've been given the Abrahamic covenant, who've been blessed and asked to be a blessing, right? And it continues. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go to, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another, <laughs> right? And again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same thing to them. And those servants obviously refer to God's prophets that have been over a long period of time to remind Israel of her central purpose in the world. But they didn't get it. And they challenge, they're, they're rejected because they challenge people on their sin, and one of the greatest sins is to neglect the top and bottom line of the Abrahamic covenant. They weren't seeking God's will, but instead they were bowing to, to idols. And it continues, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's exactly what we did. Obviously the son is Jesus. 
right? When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, listen to him, he's going to trap them now. They're going to self-condemn. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Those are hard words to hear if you were standing there and you had any like intelligence at all and you kind of got it. That would be hard to hear. Let out the vineyard means he's going to give the responsibility away. He's going to take that responsibility to be a blessing to all nations away and give it to other tenants, giving it to the Gentile nations. God's looking for fruit of the nations for his glory. And he wants us to participate in it. So we skip to verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And he says it right directly to him. And given to a people producing its fruits. And when he says you, he means those Jews standing right there. And when he says a people, he's referring to Gentile nations, the the dogs as they refer to them. Jesus is saying the Jews will have that blessing and that responsibility taken away from them and given over to the Gentiles. And we Gentiles are now responsible to reach all the nations of the world. Not only as a group of people, but you as an individual. Somehow, someway, we're all to be a part in some way in reaching the nations with God's glory. We're to be a part of this. And so we should be asking ourselves questions. What is my role? Where should I live? What should I do with my time and talent and treasures? Am I more concerned about my kingdom than I am about God's? It's a big question. I want you to feel a little bit of weight today. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling guilty and self-abusive, but I, I do want you to feel the weight of the responsibility that we carry. So that's the whole story of the Bible in four weeks. Not bad if you say if I say so myself. Amen. And I hope you never read your Bible again the same way. I hope I have ruined the way that you read the Bible. And actually, when I say ruined, I mean corrected. Because this is the way it needs to be read. One story, one introduction, one story, one conclusion. And it's all about this, right? Not that it doesn't have a bunch of other stuff in there to prepare us and grow us up and make us stronger and make make us better people and address our issues and all that kind of stuff. But man, when we become centered on ourselves, it's a downward spiral. It is a downward spiral. Uh, Albert sent me a great um, article this week about how when a church turns the corner on certain issues and just kind of goes down this road, they just disintegrate and fall apart. Great article, and that's exactly what we're talking about. We want to keep our focus right on what the gospel calls us into. Right on what Jesus has us doing. Amen. There's a second series in line with this. Uh, it's called The Missing Half, and we're going to start that after Easter. But next week, Dawn is going to speak to us. Amen. We're excited about that. And uh, let, me, let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you.
that you speak even through jumbled and uh, frantic words, that you speak even through all of our problems and weights and, and confusion. And that's what we ask. We ask that you would blow, that your breath would blow away the clouds of confusion. That your breath would steal our spines, strengthen our feet, our legs, our arms. That you would make us this flint to withstand the troubles of this world, Father God, but just as soft as butter, the melted butter, when it comes to loving people into your kingdom. Teach us, guide us, lead us, let us be focused, our, our absolute laser focus on you and what you, what you want of us. We want to be obedient children, obedient followers of you, and to move ahead to see your glory come in its fullest so that we can have joy in our fullest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.